welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navar, and today my special guest is Mark Richmond from Skeleton Key. Welcome. Hi, Matt. So you've been on the podcast a couple times before, and we always have lovely conversations. Uh, and there's a couple things we're going to be talking about, one of which is the Elusive Moose Conference we've talked a little bit about on recent episodes. Uh, and you're going to be presenting a session there, yes? I am. Um, it's kind of fun. I, I, this seems to be a summer of uh, sharing about how we run our business and how we think about business. I did a session at uh, DevCon in Las Vegas about growing from one to many and what that journey has been like and uh, recently spoke at another conference we'll talk about here um, uh, related to you know how you run your company and, and uh, so an opportunity to talk at Elusive Moose about how we manage our company and engage our employees seem like a natural fit and it's something I, I talk about with customers, I talk about it with vendors, so the chance to talk about it with consultants seems like a good fit. It's the one thing probably out there of all things I've ever run into that I'm freely willing to evangelize that and how to write, how to raise your kids. You know, I've got strong opinions about that too. Yeah, me too, even though I don't have any kids. So, so uh, <laughs> let's see, how many employees do you guys have now? We are at 17 full-time employees and one uh, uh, two-third time uh, co contractor who helps us with our bookkeeping and accounting. And then how long did it take you to get from like being a solo shop to 17 people? So um, I was solo back, last solo back in 2002, 2003. Um, I've kind of been worked for myself on and off for years. Um, I had brief stints back in the day working in New York City at um, Estee Lauder as part of their IT group or the Gartner mm -hmm. group as part of their IT group. Um, but I always kind of would go to these companies for a year or so and then leave and go back on my own and work with clients directly in IT or FileMaker. Mm -hmm. um, I then moved to St. Louis uh, back in 1996, I think it was, and um, I took a position with a local reseller doing FileMaker, doing uh, networking and general consulting and IT, mm -hmm. mostly for stability and income with my, my wife in, in college at the time or grad school. But um, I want to say it was like 2000 when I went back out on my own again and said I'm never working for someone again because it's difficult to find people um, that I could respect 360 degrees. and. Uh, so uh, I spent a few years working for myself and then decided it was time because of all the opportunity out there to to grow up and actually have employees and maybe have bricks and mortar and capitalize on the opportunity and mm -hmm. leverage some of my um, income opportunities. But I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So this path, yeah, this path that you're on to actually really understand business and finance and um, growth and stability and all these other parts about business that I never had to think about it at all when I was a solo guy. You're on the same path as, but yeah, I haven't been doing down. it. From, really, I mean, I, you could say that I really haven't been in business other than as a solo for less than 16 years. And mm -hmm. I, um, I've worked for companies. I worked for myself, but I didn't really think about anything as long as I could make ends meet. It was just doing the work. Right. But I probably haven't really seriously learned anything about business for more than maybe six years because it was really 2009 when we kind of made a, a decision to actively, deliberately manage how we run our business as opposed to just kind of organically do it. Um, right. That was when we adopted um, a methodology for doing it and have been learning and modifying that year over year, month over month ever since then. So um, what specific parts of all this are you going to be talking about at the Elusive Moose Conference? So the main thrust I'm going to be talking about is something called open book management. Um, uh, this is, uh, it's also known kind of more um, colloquially as the great game of business. Um, I want to say it was like 25 to 30 years ago um, at the Springfield Remanufacturing Company, which is 
believe, if I'm not mistaken, back then was um, an international harvester engine remanufacturing plant in Springfield, Missouri. And it's not because I moved to Missouri, really, that I ran into this. It's, it was one of the, I think, top 100 business books on Inc.'s list. It was, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's well known across the globe. But basically, um, a company was going under. Um, the managers and employees um, decided to find a way to preserve their jobs and buy the company. And during a terribly difficult time to borrow money, got a ridiculous loan. And none of them really knew how to do anything but what they knew how to do. What This guy knew how to like put bolts on that thing. And this manager knew how to crack the whip and keep his people busy. And nobody really understood the big picture on the business, how the business made money, how the business managed cash flow. It was all very much command and control uh, siloed kind of perspectives and right. they um, through difficult times and um, and deliberate effort taught themselves basic business finance and they taught it to everybody the janitor learned it the line workers learned it the people who were in charge of the lines the managers everybody learned the basics of business mm-hmm. they started keeping score um, and trying to um, communicate on a regular basis you know daily weekly within different teams and at the larger uh, organization how they were doing to achieve their goals. In their case, their goal was just make the loan payment. You know, that was their first critical number that they had to make. We got to pay the loan every month or we're dead. Everything else after that was gravy if they could just make the loan payment. Right. And, um, and then to give everybody a reason to stick around. Um, and that company back then, which was like on its death's door, is now, uh, I think it's something like 56 different companies and $38 million in sales, all under the same holding company. Wow. Um, and the employees, um, I think they've... I forget the numbers. They've spawned like 30 plus millionaires out of the original employees who were part of that. You know, and these are people who were you know, back then maybe just putting bolts on widgets and uh, right. who have been there from the beginning, who rolled up their shirt sleeves and, and dove into learning all this stuff that had nothing to do with their regular jobs and learned to act and think like owners. And so for me, hmm. um, my main goal is to talk about the power of that methodology. When you actually treat your employees as entrepreneurs and you educate themsel- uh, them and yourselves about what it takes to actually run a business and are willing to be uh, extraordinarily transparent in the process um, what a team of people can do. It's kind of based on this idea that all of us is smarter than any one of us. Um, so even though we've got some really smart people on our team, um, the rest of us could take them in a match. So I figure if we can get everybody pulling in the same direction, um, we certainly should be able to succeed and, and survive whatever the economy or our clients or different situations might throw at us. And I've got tons of stories and evidence of of that just in the short time we've been doing it. Yeah, you guys actually had the belt for the smartest FileMaker developer for an entire year, didn't didn't you? <laughs> we did. We did. We held it for a year. And we got, I think, second in the U.S. or third overall in the last one. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's a great example of, um, you know, we push each other. Like, we push each other to learn more and understand our financial literacy. And mm-hmm. um, we've got, you know, ways of educating ourselves. And every day, even today, we had like a quarterly huddle for um, Q3. And we spent a lot of time asking questions about how should we be looking at this information and what kinds of additional training do we need to better understand these numbers so that we can actually take action. And various people in the company, who people who you know, develop all day or who you know answer IT questions all day are asking questions about which of our service lines is the most profitable and how do we increase that and how do we measure that and right. um, you know what are the factors in cost of goods sold that aren't included in our calculations. And these are things that are really not the normal questions that That's employees sure. yeah. ever ask because no one ever teaches them why they're important to understand. They just take, do what the boss says. And I, I'm really not, I don't really think of myself as a boss. I think of myself as an employee at Skeleton Key and Bright Source IT who has a set of responsibilities, but I'm as accountable to everyone else as they are to me. Right. Yeah, I like that. So, um, 
somehow I missed learning about this book, so I'm going to be doubly uh, interested in your session at the Moose um, hearing about it because these are I've kind of gone a little ways down this road of, of having things be really open at my company, but I definitely want to do more of that. So this is something I definitely I really want to learn a lot more about. And uh, one of the things I really like about the Moose, I'm going to be doing um, two panel discussions there, which I really love. So basically directing the flow of conversation more than really, uh, you know, talking about any specific uh, area of my expertise. I really enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, so I, I, really I, I, the panels I've seen you run at, at DevCon, I've always enjoyed your style. I think you're, um, well, I know that from having seen you do not just the panels, but the developer cup. Um, you're very good with a crowd of people. So um, I'm also excited about the format. I think the format of having a single series of sessions uh, as opposed to concurrent sessions that compete against one another means right. that really any conversation you have with anybody there is going to be based on a common experience of going through those two days. You know, you'll be able to focus on relatively shorter sessions or 60 minutes long as opposed to 75, I think, is uh -huh. the format. And um, so, you know, you're going to be with a, a smaller group of people uh, focused on the same kind of uh, curriculum uh, with plenty of opportunities to meet and talk about what you've accumulated and learned along the way and um and no other session there that you feel is maybe going to be you know going head to head i know what the other conferences i do there's always these concurrent paths or tracks right. and i'm struggling because i want to be at something that's up against me and wondering which people are going to choose which one to go to oh yeah and, some of the huge uh, conferences will have eight things that are going on at once or something you know right go so, to comic-con or something <laughs> i'm excited about the format i'm excited about the location um there's a chance for me to reconnect with some friends I didn't really have a chance to talk to in Las Vegas. It was that was difficult sometimes at that hotel to find each other and um, and to find yeah. time to talk to each other. So it's a, kind of a chance to do that at a slower pace. There's some people here who used to be part of that FileMaker community, um, like Jonathan Stark and others who I've enjoyed communicating with in the margins outside of the FileMaker community. So I'm excited to see some of them face to face. Yeah, and, uh, me too. I think it'll be a good time. Yes. Let's see. A couple of things, other things we were talking about just before we re um, recorded here is some books you and I have both been reading that I wanted to sort of compare and contrast. And this theme of financial literacy is uh, really plays in. The book that I'm just about finished reading is um, Tony Robbins. Now I know what you're thinking. <laughs> oh, you mean that motivational speaker with huge teeth? <laughs> yeah, it's Actually, funny though. I I saw I, I have a friend who's a really big fan of Tony Robbins, and I have the same initial impression always. But I did uh, not that long ago, and I need to follow through. I did sign up for a free thirty-minute session. They have this thing on Facebook that shows yeah. up, and I was like, you know what? I've heard like two or three people I really respect and admire who feel that that is he has made a a direct impact on their perspective, and I'm not so easy to just kind of get caught up in someone's charisma that I'm worried of losing myself in something like a cult. So right. I should take a sample of this, just like all the other things in my life I've sampled and incorporate the pieces that make sense into my overall fabric of how I think. So I'm kind of curious about what your perspective is on the book. So the book is called Money Master the Game, and he's never really written about finance before. I think all of his other things were, were sort of about being your best, and um, he doesn't like being called a motivational speaker, even though that's definitely the how most people would see him. Um, he's because he's just so positive, you know, all the time. Um, but the book is really about dispelling all kinds of myths that we've thought about our own retirement accounts. Uh, and the basic, the basic truth is that every single, every single stockbroker and a uh, company like that, that sells you services is not acting in your best interest. They're acting in their best interest. So mutual funds, for example, have all these hidden, there's like 10 different types of fees 
and other things about mutual funds that basically makes them a complete scam. Every single mutual fund virtually is just a total ripoff. And that's that's been what that was what I was sold when I was in my 20s for all my retirement accounts. And if I if that was in index funds instead, the amount of money that I would have in my retirement account would be like twice or three times what it is now. Just because of all those fees I had no idea were even there. And right. because of all the way that it's managed, you know, they'll take 1% or 2% out of it as a management fee. If they sell stocks, which they do all day, every day, and they make a bunch of money, so they buy stock and they make and they sell it a week later at a profit, they take like 25, 30% commission on the gain. And that was never, and it may have been super deep in the prospectus, which is 96 pages long, but you know, I never, I never understood that. And, there's, and there's that and a whole bunch of other things like that that I just did not know and that no one taught me. Uh, and it's greatly changing how I'm going to be approaching. Uh, one of the things, for example, is having a 401k plan at the company. So I just started one. MSN Media now has a 401k plan. And we contribute to, um, to um, all of our employees. And uh, all the funds that they have in the plan are in index funds. Or, or most easily can be in, invested in super low cost index funds. Yeah, I want to say that it, this kind of falls into the same category of um, frustration I have with the lack of financial education that exists in our um, education system. You know, we've heard for years the simple things like kids don't even learn the basics of how to balance a checkbook or um, they don't learn the true value of money. And then there's all kinds of other strange things like the the school event that rewards kids with tickets that they can use to buy junky, you know, toys or something like that. Right. And, you know, we're training them to be consumers, uh, but we're not necessarily training them to understand credit or cash or to understand investment or retirement or savings. Um, right. Really, it's, it's, it's really the, the families that have Com to train yeah, it, but the families themselves interest. aren't educated either. You know? Yeah, that's yeah, true. Like, yeah. Even, you know, the parents haven't been educated in this either. And how many parents do you know who you know, went bankrupt or uh, foreclosed on a house or had troubles in their own teenage years when they first got their first credit card. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think the same is true with financial education. My dad, one thing I'll give him huge credit for is he, um, I used to take this as a, a negative thing. Like I would talk about the theater work I was doing or the uh, architecture work I was doing in undergrad. And mm -hmm. he, he would always ask, what about the business classes? Aren't you taking any business classes? And um, I would you know, wave that off as that didn't really matter. And, um, and now I know having lost a lot of money in the first few years of my business that um, just a few business classes would have made a huge, paid a huge dividend if I just had more yep. education in this area. Um, it's so easy to just you know, sign up for the 401k plan or the IRA and just accept the you know, automatic in, enrollment into different kinds of uh, funds and things or and not really look more closely. And then to look at this information and scrutinize it, you just don't have the vocabulary or the experience to necessarily understand how it really works. And um, it's a bit of a mountain to climb because you're starting late in life and, and um, it seemed like it should be simpler and then you find out it's not quite so simple or maybe quite so ethical as it could be. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is frustrating, but you gotta, you gotta take charge of it. And um, yeah, there's just, there's so many facts that are all sort of coming into line, you know, with, with how long we're going to live on average for those of us who are, you know, 30, 40, 50 and how much we have in retirement and when we're going to be able to expect to stop working and how much Social Security is going to be there and how expensive life is going to be and whether tax rates are going to be higher or lower back then. All these factors that I had really hadn't thought about deeply enough that um, 
I now am definitely thinking about a lot. <laughs> so how are, how are you sleeping? <laughs> oh, I'm sleeping fine because I'm, I'm making changes. Good. And, I find know. that every time I peel back one of these layers um, and I get that brief moment of relief, um, it reveals to me the depth of my ignorance in several other areas. So um, I'm hoping at some point there'll be a sense of mastery or at least um, operational awareness that will allow me to feel um, more relaxed. But uh, lately, it feels like, um, you know, we come into like, you know, we have our, our quarterly, monthly recap this morning with our team going over our numbers and our performance and talking about what's coming. And for all of the success that we've been able to engender together, there's still a sense of so much more that we have to do. Or my, my partner will come in and say, um, hey, uh, you know, every time I'm feeling like we're really um, messy and that we don't have our stuff all lined up in an order or I wish we were more organized, then I meet with a client and I see how they're managing their files or their data or their books and their information and we're talking about how to improve their IT or their data management mm -hmm. and I realize we are doing really quite well as much as we you know feel like we're not doing as well as we could so I, I know it's all relative in terms of the complexity but um, it's sort of the it's the, it's the other side of the you know, double-edged sword right on one side I'm really glad I've learned as much as I have about finance in the last few years and now I'm keenly aware of how much I still need to learn yeah well I think that's for me, I've actually sort of just made peace with that and really wanted to get, um, you know, be happy in that position of knowing that I'm ignorant about a lot of things, but always on the slope of learning some. I like that. I like that space. Sure. So you read a book recently, too, that really impacted you. Yeah. So, um, so you know, we have a, uh, I mean, all these things are interrelated. Um, I think about a year ago or so, I did a... Um, a couple of meetups um, and I decided to talk about our sales process and a lot about the way we sell and or you know do intakes I should say um, well you know it's selling is is really about being um, equally open with the clients as we are with ourselves or our vendors you know we we try to be very candid and transparent from the beginning about mm -hmm. what are we going to cover in this meeting when is the next meeting what's going to be covered there and how long is it going to take to get to an answer and if we were to come up with an answer what might the order of magnitude be and um, what might the timetable be for doing that work and at the same time we kind of want the client to to be candid with us you know one of the things that everybody I think in consulting wants to know is what's your budget you know if you um, I want to know what your budget is because I don't want to come to you with a $50,000 plan when you've got a $10,000 budget and I don't want to come to you with a $10,000 plan when you have a $50,000 budget. Mm -hmm. I want to come to you with a plan that's the right fit and the right fit is a combination of what needs to be done as well as uh, what it will let you achieve or do as a result right. um, and whether or not it's going to be affordable and doable either now or in the future. It could be that it's not affordable now but it's worth doing so you're going to go out and find a way to pay for it. It could be that it's uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't go far enough in terms of I kind of pulled my punches and maybe didn't get as ambitious as I could have been in thinking. And so I was talking to a client, uh, it was the first meeting and I have you know the basic questions, you know, what are you trying to do, how do you do it now, how many people, what is your timetable and I brought up the budget. And I said, you know, I know this is one of those conversation topics, so let me tell you a little bit why about it. I'm going to ask this. We're open book, and we, we teach our employees about financial literacy, so the developers are not just developers, they're consultants, and they're, they're entrepreneurial. They kind of want to make sure that when a client wants something that they understand, maybe on some level, what the value is. Maybe it's a monetary value, like it'll save you clicks, or it'll you know, buy back two hours a week, or it'll keep you from having to hire or pay an outside vendor for a service. Mm -hmm. Maybe it just gets you home by five o'clock to go to your kid's soccer game, and that's got a value to you as well. But they want to understand so that they don't just follow your orders and build things without any kind of mindfulness. And I said, similarly, um, I like to know, you know what a client's budget is, not because I'm going to try to spend every penny of it, but because I want to understand what's possible 
Um, and also whether or not you're being realistic and we can help you. Like if you if you have like dreams of building a dream house that's a mansion and I've, you've got a shack budget, I want to tell you right now that I don't think we can help you. Maybe there's someone out there who's less expensive or does it a different way. Maybe there's something off the shelf you can buy instead and take a compromise. But I want to be candid with you and point you in the right mm-hmm. direction. Sure. And uh, do no harm. And uh, and he was like, well, you know, so he said something to me like, you know, that I learned long ago that the guy who shows his cards first loses. And so I'm going against every fiber of my being, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you I've got X dollars. I borrowed it three years ago, and I spent a little bit doing this, and now I've got this much left. And I might be able to get more. I would even reach for more if I could, but that's what I have right now. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to tell me how you're going to take all of it, right? And I was like, no, I just it's good to know. Based on what you've said, I think you're going to need more. But let's go ahead and figure out what we need to do, and then let's come back full circle and see if there's a way for us to um, build part of it that gets you a good value in return. And, um, and you decide, and we'll talk about all the different ways we can get there. We might do some design, we might do some coaching and training, we mm-hmm. might do some uh, um, phase development, let's figure it out. Yeah, there's kind of two ways you could do it. You could say, you know, this is the budget and this is my ultimate goal. Um, you know, can you do that? But another way to do it is to say, well, let's just start, actually Jesse Barnum does this a lot with his clients too. He does it in $5,000 chunks or something. Right, you know? little, little baby steps. Little and baby so- steps, it's like, let's, let's figure out a specific measurable goal that will solve one part of that in a meaningful way that we can start and finish in a short amount of time, put it into practice, and then go from there. And so you immediately started getting return on investment. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you know. Right, and, and there's different styles for different groups. Like we've talked a lot about that methodology um, over the years, knowing Jesse and some of the others that we've met in, the, in some of the groups we're together in. And and, um, and some are a good fit for some companies and some not. So while so the guy tells me this and he says, I can't believe I'm gonna tell you this, here's my number. And he, he, he mentioned mm-hmm. this book called Getting Naked. Um, and he said, it's kind of a fable. It's, no. it's a management consulting book. It's all about a, a methodology for consulting your clients. And so I, I was just wrapping up an audio book I've been listening to. One of my kids was reading, and I was trying to stay in lockstep with my, my son. So I, I downloaded the audio book of Getting Naked, and I listened to it. And it's a very quick book, so it just took me a few days to listen to it in the yeah. car rides to and from work. And Apparently, there's actually more than one uh, book with that same title, and not all of my business <laughs> books. I'm looking on Amazon right now. Yeah, definitely in the business book series. Um, yeah, the business book series. Yeah, not the one called "Getting Naked Again," which is about dating and romance. But no, uh, I don't think that's the one. Um, yeah, no, that's not. The in one. any case, it, it's it's <laughs> basically all about you know um, these two management. I think it's a it's kind of a, a real methodology, but told in the form of a fable about a large management consulting firm, kind of a, a, the kind that you do see on um, House of Lies. You know, um, you know that, that uh, TV show. The, I guess it's a network show or a. Um, Showtime or HBO show, which is all about, you know, just get as much money as you can from the client um, versus this company that basically goes in no research, vulnerable, willing to make stupid suggestions, willing to admit their errors, willing to be extraordinarily candid with the clients and Mm -hmm. develop loyalty. And it reminded me of the trusted advisor and some of the other books I've accumulated and read along the years from from members in the community who've introduced me to them. Mm-hmm. And I've never been a big business book guy anyway. Um, but I listened to it and, and I'm listening to it thinking, yes, this is this is what we try to do. This is how candid we try to be. These are the kinds of, um, I'm, I'm happy telling clients, I, I don't understand that acronym, can you explain it to me? And, and right. learning as I go. And it's really never backfired. You know, there's moments of awkwardness, and they give some great examples in the book. But um, it's one I'd—it's a really quick read or listen. I'd strongly recommend it. And considering some of the books I read are hyper theoretical, like *The Black Swan*, not the one with Natalie Portman, but the one by Nicholas Taleb, which is all about you know the unknown, known, the known unknown, oh, and yeah, other yeah. kinds of unpredictable things. Um, you know, that's kind of high-minded. And then mm-hmm. you've got one that's a little bit more practical, and it's all just about you know doing something that is traditionally one one way, a different way, in a way that's more mm-hmm. honest. Um, 
I look at that and I look at the great game of business and I look at some of the companies who are in the great game of business and at some of these conferences I, I go to, you know, these are $400 million companies, you know, internationally known breweries or motorcycle manufacturers or airplane remanufacturers or man, or, or, um, uh, or service companies or uh, importer exporters I and mean, very mm -hmm. large companies that play the great game of business. And these people who are commanding legions of employees and millions of dollars in expenses, uh, you know, tens of millions of dollars of expenses in multiple locations around the globe right. are sitting there talking with me who is like a, a company that's like less than three million in revenue and has 18 employees or 17 employees and exchanging ideas and sharing secrets and um, and feel that they can't you know can learn as much from me as I can from them and that kind of humble approach to this no matter what your status or position is and how hmm. far you've come and how old you are and what you've learned and done is um is really compelling and so um getting naked gives you a taste of that I think um great game of business and open book management expose you to that concept within your own organization and then once you find books like that you find communities i think of like-minded individuals you know especially now on the internet making it so easy um there's conferences and other kinds of groups out there who you know rally around these topics and and share best practices sure. and so that's that's another reason i'm excited about elusive moose is that there's a lot of things that people can be talking about there that i think complement what we do or are important to us but not the primary way we manage things and so I'm excited just because I know I'll come away with a bunch of uh, ideas, and I tend to assimilate elements of what I learn. I rarely, you know, just take something and swallow it whole. The right. great business is probably the singular concept in managing a business that I feel like we've attempted to swallow whole and really help define our approach, even though we don't do it exactly the same way as the book. Right. Um, and we are still have a lot of ground to cover. Um, most of the time, it's you know. Oh, I like this little two percent of this idea. I'm going to incorporate that into my whole fabric. Right, because it fits perfectly. It's a puzzle piece that actually connects. You know. Right. Was hmm. it Gandhi said um, something like I'm misquoting him, but it was something like um, I learned this back in in high school. It was something like my religion is you know the sum of everything I do and that I say and the way I act. You know that if you want to give me a label a religion, you're going to have to kind of know all of me because I'm not a prescribed dogma that's written in a book. I am a me, and so mm -hmm. it's kind of a a unique religion. It's a religion of one, and uh, it doesn't follow any particular uh, ideology. It it evolves over time, and so I think the same is true of, of most companies. They mm -hmm. they rarely just come out of a book. They they are a combination of all the people. And every time you hire someone, that equation changes a little bit. And every time someone leaves, the equation changes. And every time you even get a new client, the equation changes. Yeah. Um, and we were also talking just before we started recording about how our own personal backgrounds and very strange experiences we had and weird colleges we went to and things like that have really affected how we approach business in terms of openness. Because I think you and I are probably more open than with our employees about exactly what's going on with the company in terms of sharing, you know, the open books kind of a thing of like, this is, you know, that kind of thing doesn't really fit into the profit because if you do that, it'll affect this. And you really, you know, a lot of, a lot of business owners don't share that with their employees. More than you think, but I think you're right. I think most don't. I think command and control is still the primary method. Um, and certainly we work with lots of clients who live in command and control environments. And so mm -hmm. you can tell just by the nature of the conversations that they're just focusing on the work in front of them and not thinking about the big picture. Right. Because no one's invited them to um, or rewards them for that. And uh, but I, I, you know, I'd rather pick the was it the road less traveled? Yeah. Um, it seems to me a more honest way to collaborate with other people. And it's it's certainly more humble. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm uh, 
I'm glad that people are willing to to um, to join our team and rally with me toward this effort and see me at, in some form or another as a leader. But I'm also humbled because there's some really intelligent um, uh, and awesome people who work with me. And and then of course I you know get to meet with you and other members of the community. And you, I find that when you start to share with them openly, you get incredible responses. I this this DevCon topic I did on one to many. A lot of the conversation was just about how I got to where I am and um, and all the strange paths I took to get there and mm -hmm. all the mistakes I made along the way and the, probably the most frequent comment I got from people in the hallway afterwards was man just to hear someone say all the stupid things that they did and stand up on a stage in front of a couple hundred people and say it I was just thinking you know there's a brother from the same mother or whatever the yeah, saying yeah. is you know they were like I mean they didn't know me from Adam but they felt right. like they completely knew me because they had made all the same stupid mistakes and they never admitted them to anybody yeah and um and that was the whole point of doing it is just to 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 put it out there I expect I'm going to ask you know and elusive move some questions to the audience and I'm going to get a handful of hands that go up and as I ask more questions I think more and more hands will go up because it all starts with that it all starts with a willingness to be um vulnerable and admit your shortcomings or your lack of expertise um what is it? it's like the yeah. 12 steps right first thing is admitting you're powerless to sure. affect the change as you can't and part of this i think is just being able to admit what you don't know um before you can actually start to learn and also you have to recognize another quote that i throw out all the time is nobody ever learned anything from success you know you only ever learn from doing it wrong yeah so, i would agree we made a lot of mistakes and there's that, <laughs> that that fail upward idea you know <laughs> fail quickly early and often <laughs> there have been sessions about that so let's geek out on FileMaker stuff a little bit so how how was um el capitan have you got clients and have you put that on any of your own macs yet you know i'm i'm, I'm fortunately removed from so much of the technical day-to-day -day. i mean a lot of the work i do is um front end you know tip of the spear with new customers coming into the pipeline yeah. and doing initial design and architecting i know that the team has been um scrambling a bit i've seen some conversations in our slack channels talking about you know issues people ran into with it um other issues related to pdf and printing and some other things with email i think there's some email uh, outlook kind of incompatibilities uh, brewing there as well in the mix um and some um relief that a update was coming um but i don't think we've had any major um you know dust-ups as a result of it there were we tend to be a bit conservative several so but um yeah we tend to be a bit conservative on adopting the newest version of things with our clients like we jump in um but we don't necessarily install you know the newest version of something or the most recent update to ios or filemaker the day it comes out we do it on our own systems as soon right. as possible but on clients we we tend to tell them to wait a, a few weeks or a month to give it a chance to settle out yeah that's a good idea for sure um, and actually, there already is a FileMaker vRev 14v3, which specifically right. addresses the issues in El Capitan on the Mac. Right. Um, and which seems to have done it because there was some there was a couple of weird things like an invisible dialog box would pop up. You'd be in the calculation engine and you hit OK, but the screen wouldn't clear. And then you then you'd have to hit another key like enter or cancel to accept or, or you know, but you didn't know exactly what was going on. And so if you hit the wrong key, your calculation would be erased. Oh, nice. And if you hit the right key, it would be committed. And that one was fixed in the in the update. So it's interesting. I, I You know, you and a few other people I know in the community um, uh, kind of bridge the gap between uh, leading the company and selling, uh, you know, and intake on new customers um, and, you know, mentoring your employees and coding. 
And, um, and I was surprised by some of the people I talked to at DevCon who still code on a regular basis, even if it's just for one client or, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of system. Um, I remember one person was telling me they had to troubleshoot something, and I was like, you're troubleshooting real-time problems? Like, I'm kind of shocked. And, uh, and they were, you know, they just know it better. They've been working with the client forever. And so even though they've got plenty of employees who could do it, they still mm-hmm. step mm-hmm. in. And I, I wonder sometimes if I've lost something there. Like, I'm, I, I, I tinker enough with FileMaker to stay certified and to be able to, you know, write checks that my team can cash when it comes to capabilities of a system we're building for a customer. And, mm-hmm. and I, I'm somewhat agnostic when I'm designing. Anyway, I'm thinking about databases and interfaces and then only along the way how FileMaker would be estimated to do that or whether it's a good fit. But um, I don't actively dive in and code very often. And I'm sure that any member of my team who listens to this podcast will say, and let's keep it that way because <laughs> they, they code a way better than I do and way faster. But um, sometimes I feel like I miss out, like I need to have a pet project or something that I'm working on all the time to make sure that I stay fresh on on those kinds of nuances. Um, the one thing I am running into technically a lot, and I don't know if it's keychain related or if it's 14 related, but it's happening on both Mac and Windows, is um, strange behavior with the, the dialog box for opening, you know, um, files on the server you know I've got my list of favorite servers and mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. click on them and, and I'd say more than half the time it doesn't display the files that are on that server it doesn't prompt me for a login it doesn't prompt me to change and update my password on my keychain it just doesn't show me anything we've seen this happen in um, 2x as well or which is like a Citrix product mm-hmm. um, you know where we uh, log in remotely and we click on the server and it doesn't show us any connected files and we have you know pre-authentication turned on but it still doesn't even show us anything you can still go in and define a file or hit open remote and then pick the same favorite and it shows everything fine so there's definitely some there's definitely something going on with um some of the yeah i guess i don't know what what i don't know what component it is but there's well, definitely, that's a different definitely port number wrinkles. so the, the main port number that filemaker uses to actually open the files is one, but the one that I use as a browse files is a different one. Um, I wonder if that wasn't bonjour. I don't know if that's still a bonjour feature, and that, that could be related to a bonjour issue if that's been aged out. This yeah, is just maybe. demonstrating my ignorance. Yeah, I remember the bonjour thing, which you can, it's actually an optional thing to install or not install on Windows Server. Um, when when you install server, it actually comes up like at the end to say, hey, do you also want to bonjour installed? Right. And I thought that was only for printing, but I'm not really sure. Um, I usually don't install it, but uh, yeah, Fortunately, I, I have much smarter people on my team who can figure this stuff out. I just figure out a workaround and keep getting yeah. stuff done. That particular aspect that you just mentioned is not one that I have a problem with. So maybe something with how your servers are configured or, or something like that. Um, I guess other technical stuff. You know, we've got a couple of um, – so this, again, dovetails a little bit with the great game and, and uh, the way we try to engage our employees in understanding how we succeed and grow and make money. Um you know, so several years ago, we started actually reselling FileMaker software. For years, we just kind of took our FBA discount and just subsidized our customer licensing. We thought of it as, you know, a service we were providing, you know, mm-hmm. platform agnostic. We don't sell you any stuff. Uh, kind of, you know, um, naive about how businesses find different revenue streams and realize we should be. I think it was Jesse, because here goes Jesse again showing up on our podcast. But mm-hmm. um, he turned to me at one point and was like, that's ridiculous. You know, like, I don't care if it's 5% or 20%. Like, if there's an opportunity for you to generate some margin on a product, you should. And um, to squander that is silly. And uh, he said it in a funnier way than that. But anyway, um, and similarly, we tried a product with FMRPC right before, you know, Perform Script on Server came out. So the timing with that was terrible, but that was a, a fun opportunity to kind of work on a product with Jesse's team and learn all the ins and outs of that. Yeah, plus actually um, FMRPC was way beyond what Perform Script on Server does. It had all kinds of security nuances that were way beyond what... Uh, yeah, there's some pros and cons there between yeah. the different implementations for sure. Um, you know, and we did some we did some 
thinking about which, whether you should try to go head to head and compare them and just decided that um, it was a good, useful exercise in learning how to sell products. We got, we're still selling those products. We sell some other products on the, on the IT side of our business. We have another division, BrightSource IT. They sell, you know, they're doing everything from selling hosting like we are to selling, um, you know, um, backup services and disaster recovery services and email and uh, Office 365 and other things like that. So we're definitely seeing some diversification. We do have a couple of um, products in the works on the FileMaker side, um, uh, neither of which are ready for market, but I can give you kind of a sense of what they're about. One, we've actually shown you and a few other people already, and this is a, a tool for analyzing server logs um, and to answer some of the questions that um, you know are difficult sometimes to tease out, You know, mm -hmm. things like number of concurrent users by solution different yeah. number of um uh, uh number of you know failed connections you know security issues like you know attempts to connect that you know, so you don't want all those emails coming in telling you that people are fat fingering their passwords but right. it would be nice to see patterns in uh errors in login attempts um maybe just consumption patterns on use just for filemaker pro you know forget concurrent connections just if I've got a multi-tenant environment and I want to know which solutions are the busiest, um, how do I look at that over a time span, um, you know, without sitting down and kind of pulling out Excel and a right. text editor? You know, the, these are be tools that automate and process that and generate reports and notifications and give us a way to charge back for consumption patterns. This could be useful for enterprises who have multi-tenant environments or even hosting companies um, like ourselves or even larger scale groups. And we've also done a lot of sync projects um, and used a variety of the sync products and tools that are on the market and have found a few pieces along the way that we felt were either missing or necessary. You know, like when we're doing multi-phase development of a sync solution, we get in or troubleshooting of sync solutions um, because users are in the mix, so they do mm -hmm. unpredictable things. You know, there were needs to do things like backup uh, files before or after sync operations. Um, there was needs to kind of generate a repository of snapshots of a file right. in case there's sync failures. Mm -hmm. There's a um, need. There's need. There's different methods for updating solutions in the field so that the user can kind of get an update. You know, some tools like GoZync, I think, had some of that capability built mm -hmm. in. Right. So um, but some of the other update the uh, the program itself. The file yeah, but others didn't, and um, and so we kind of wanted some universal tools that we could use for backup, for updates. Um, and we, so we've developed kind of a suite of tools that we kind of look at as utility files, but we realize that there's a potential market there where they could really be bolted on to any number of solutions and, um, and kind of facilitate some of these same challenges that mm -hmm. other people encounter. Um, they certainly saved our bacon a few times and clients, you know, data a few times, or just streamline the process for sending out patches and updates. You know, you can think about it, any sync solution with a fleet of 50 iPads has got a, a distribution problem looming, you know, um, when you have a single update and you have relatively inexperienced users, giving them an email that says, you know, rename this and then download that and then yeah. launch this script. I mean, forget no. it. It's not going to happen nope. correct on 10% of them. So um, these were developed because of those kinds of scenarios and then have been kind of field tested by a number of customers. So we haven't named them or come up with a pricing model or even decided if we're going to charge or put them out there for free. But right. um they're the kinds of things I imagine we're going to try to move forward in Q1. Um, we've got bigger fish to fry right now in terms of our planning for the year. But um, I know that increasing product revenue and diversifying our lines of service, one of the things that Great Game talks about that we haven't done yet is they, they talk about this idea that, you know, you should always have some kind of plan for where your future business is going to come from. And whether that's a particular market of customers, or whether that's a new product line or service that you offer, you should have a plan to kind of bring on an additional 20% or replace a missing 20% of your revenue, um, you know, really quickly. And so this kind of contingency planning, you know, if we're not selling as mm -hmm. many widgets as we thought we were, and it's June, and we want to hit our goal, because 
failure is not an option. What can we bring online quickly that might be able to supplant some of those missing widget sales? And um, we generally have just been focusing on the widget sales and trying to make sure we hit our goals and you know right. bootstrapping our way. But I really like the idea of having a couple other irons in the hopper that we can pull out and rapidly, you know, aggressively launch in an effort to um, generate visibility and marketing attention, mm -hmm. generate potentially new revenue streams and new opportunities. Um, so kind of like blog content, you know, it's one of those things that's really hard to find time to do and everybody's billing and doing other kinds of work. So doing marketing mm -hmm. work just feels like it's counterintuitive. Like it's hard to see the actual results of I did this post and then I got a job. Um, but I think it falls into the same category. You got to make some time or budget for those kinds of uh, activities that will maybe be investments and pay off later. Well, we're both here talking on the podcast, which is sort of that. Right. I mean, I've done this for, I don't know what, not 10 years now, over five years though. But mostly just because I love it, you know. I never really, I never filed this under a marketing thing. I filed well, this sorry. under just keeping and keeping tabs with uh, all the people in the FileMaker community who I love talking with from time to time. Well, that's probably what makes it easy. You know, if you thought about it as work that you had to get done, then you know it would just be one more thing that you could yeah. avoid doing. You know, if you like doing it, it's a lot easier to do it. I know. I was actually trying to convince you to record at six a.m. my time. I'm like, come on, man. He's two hours ahead of me. It should be easy for him to get up at eight and I get up at six. And then what did I do? Showed up 15 minutes late anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, yeah. So the, the, the bigger point I was trying to make with like the El Capitan, I was actually really thrilled that um, the day that a new major OS for Mac came out, I installed it and FileMaker ran great like, with a couple of little minor things. And same thing for iOS 9. I upgraded my phone and my iPad to iOS 9, and, and uh, FileMaker Go just worked. There wasn't any, really any issues. And I think that, you know, to have an, a platform like that where the company's really looking at new things coming out and they're planning for it, and even though it's, you know, not 100%, but only 99% functional, I think is great. And I was really, really pleased. Yeah, you know, I, I want to say that um, this is this is probably the, the perennial struggle, right, for FileMaker is... Um, their visibility in the marketplace as a um, as a tool on a variety of fronts, everything from you know uh, backwards compatibility and um, you know the ability to convert and migrate your files forward with relatively few hiccups, and you know just the fact that when Go first came out, I mean the first version of Go, I logged into our primary ERP solution that we used in FileMaker at the mm -hmm. time, and even though it was tiny on the screen. For the most part, it worked, yep. and uh, and I didn't do any recoding. I mean, no one even knew what you needed to do. I think I had even read Scott's, you know, FileMaker 1.0, you know, guide on converting solutions or modifying yep. them to work with Go. I just dove right in, and I was stunned with the ease with which that happened and how smooth that was. And so, um, this is one of those things where, like, we love FileMaker as a product company to um, to help with that, but they're they're focused on the product quality. They're focused on new features and capabilities, and mm -hmm. and making I think better use these days of the channel of the people like us who are out there doing the work, mm -hmm. developing solutions, and and working with clients. It really does come to us to a certain degree. You know, we're the ones who are experiencing those epiphanies and those realizations about the value of the platform, and we're the ones dovetailing with the customers at the Apple stores or otherwise, having the opportunity to explain to them what's so useful. I mean, yes. As much as I love the product, that the name does sound like 1982, and that's okay. You know, like that would, that would be a really big change for them to make. But um, beyond that, I, you know, I tell clients I, I, I hate saying the name of the platform sometimes because it feels like I'm talking about something that needs a refresh. But at the same time, 
I have absolute confidence in what we can do with the platform for you, both based on our own ability and based on what the platform makes it easy for us to do. And we had to explain to an IT group recently at a large a large supermarket chain just, you know, how different it was from the traditional programming environments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was sort of like they don't really have anything to compare it to that's worth comparing it to. You know, unfortunately, all the things that have similar kind of GUI type interfaces or contextual kind of, um, you know, uh, schema where everything's kind of closely knit and tied to each other. The tools that are anything like that are not really good comparisons, and so they kind of reduce the value. So we try to invent the right language. Often it's just show and tell. You know, that's often the where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, that's really true because it is pretty hard to envision it. Um, but if you actually just look at a solution, like very often when I have the first meeting with a customer, uh, while I'm trying to visualize what they want, I'll take a look at, um, I'll show them something else that I've done for somebody else that's really similar. And then, you know, they can really see like, oh yeah, this is how it looks. And then take them into layout mode and say, yeah, and you can change things and move them around. And, you know, you, you have the power to do a lot of things on your own without necessarily um, hiring hiring us to do all that work. Well, I have to run off to the next thing. Okay. Um, I have loved this conversation as I always do. And um, I look forward to seeing you, what, in only a week or two in uh, Chicago. Correct. I'll see you in Chicago. I hope to see other people there too, whether you're part of the FileMaker community or you're just independent consultants looking to talk about different ways to manage stuff. I think there's going to be a lot of very smart people willing to share their secret sauce. I I think it's going to be an excellent conference. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Matt.